what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part four, and the final part in the story of Henry Keogh, the man who would spend over 20 years incarcerated in Australia for the murder of his fiancée, Anna Jane Chaney. It's a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. In our previous episode, we heard the story of Henry's first brush with violence within the prison system, when his cellmate would announce to him that he was under instructions to give him a flogging. Henry would luckily manage to talk his way out of it and, in fact, goes on to gel with a man who was about to rearrange his face. This wouldn't be Henry's only narrow escape from violence. And then when I moved from E Division to B Division, probably nine or so months later, this young guy walked up to me while I'm just sort of putting my stuff away in the cell. And he says, um, what was Anna like? She was a very attractive young woman, wasn't she? I said, yeah, it just seemed weird the way he was asking me his questions. Mm. After he left after about 15 minutes or so, one of the uh, Aboriginal guys who I'd known and um, played chess and cards with uh, down at the Ramad Centre for probably about the best part of half a year, Wayne, he said, um, stay down this end of the, uh, the wing, don't go down there because him and his mate are going to jump you. Um, but um, we'll get this sorted out tomorrow. It looks like and you made some pretty good friends. <laughs> well, the thing is, I didn't want to be judged. And so I never judged anybody. Yeah. And, um, I had the advantage of you know, sort of a good education and, I, and I'd help almost anybody who needed it. You know, guys needed to write some instructions for their solicitors or application for home detention or bail. I did, and I ended up having a pretty good strike rate because, to me, it was obvious. You don't bang on about stuff that's irrelevant. Just tell them what they need to know and want to hear. 
I'd do that for them and um, I wouldn't charge because I said, I don't want them for it. I said, why not? Everyone else does. I said, well, I don't do refunds. So, because I said, if it, if it doesn't work, I'm not going to pay you back. <laughs> With the American system, you hear a lot about extortion and that sort of stuff. I mean, you get the similar thing happen in Australian oh, yeah, prisons. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, if someone comes in, it's it's obvious they're loaded and they're you know, a bit soft. You know, your white collar types. Um, yeah, of course, they're going to get monstered in, in a heartbeat. Others who they really are, they they're green. They come in, they think they're going to uh, play cards or gamble or whatever, and it's a sharp pull. It really is. Guys will sort of. Um, get smokes or, or um, drugs or whatever it is um, on tick and then can't pay for it. And so um, they're in a world of trouble. So essentially I suppose you you just kept yourself to yourself apart from helping <clears throat> other people who needed yep. help and, and, and that was it? Yep. So staring down the barrel of decades behind bars, Henry says that he still had hope that this would all be fixed on appeal, which was, of course, his next focus. However... He explains, with no funds left for lawyers, he was very much reliant on help whenever he could get it. If your lawyers are, are working pro bono, that means they're only going to be doing it, uh, any work for, uh, on your case, when they don't have paying clients or they've got, got a bit of downtime. And if they've got a long, complicated case that is paying, uh, you're just going to get put on the back burner. And it's quite easy for them just to be forgotten because you're out of sight, out of mind. They've already started on another couple of cases. And so you are just you know, relegated to them being motivated to um, to work on your case when they can find the time. Occasionally you'll find people like that. They're few and far between because you know most of them are working in firms where they've got to get their bill of hours up. And um, you know, if they don't make it, they're out. Obviously, you had paid attorneys to, or paid lawyers to start with. Probably would have cost a fortune to have those guys on for two court cases. Yeah. Um, so after that, were you just relying on on people doing it pro bono? Yeah, had to because I I didn't have, didn't have a brass rose to my name after that. Yeah. Cleaned out my super, my share of the, the family home. That was it. How many appeals did you put through in total? A lot, because in parallel to the um, criminal appeals. What we were trying to do also was show that the integrity of the so-called expert witness, namely um, Manock and his 2IC, was flawed, or in his case, inadmissible because he wasn't an expert. So we had to we appealed to the um, the medical tribunal to demonstrate that what he had said, what he had done, was inadequate and flawed and should never have been uh, led as evidence because. At the end of the day, what's central to any criminal case is, all right, first of all, is there evidence that a wrongful death or a murder has occurred? Or, or, or even if it was, a, let's say, a manslaughter. I mean, that's still wrongful in, in the eyes of the law. And then and only then do you look at any other circumstantial evidence such as opportunity or um, means or motive even, because plenty of people have motive, but if nothing's happened, it, it makes no difference. We wanted to discredit Manock and also his 2IC, who it turns out had basically backed up what um, Manock had said without looking at um, the slides under the microscope. So another asshole that had lied. There were several recantations um, by Manock after um, all my appeals had finished, um, where he said, oh, no, I got it wrong, or I, di- I, didn't, I didn't actually see that. 
but I said it at the time. So he actually came out and said he got that he got it wrong. Yep. And, and none of that mattered, obviously, to to the courts. No, no. Henry says that in total he believes he made around 10 appeals. One after the other would be rejected. And the rejections would start to take their toll on him mentally, to the point that he started to think about ending it all. I had reached a point where I thought, it doesn't matter what we do or what we say. The die is cast. They are not going to admit they've made a mistake. Um, They've got too much at stake. And I just let all these attempts and manoeuvres operate around me without any much of a, a genuine concern for, the, for how they were progressing because I thought it didn't matter. You know, I just despaired of it getting um, any sort of traction. And um, I actually did become clinically depressed. Uh, and believe it or not, I actually, I'm glad of it now, but at the time I thought it was always just you know, like a made-up word. I thought something that people used to say to get attention or to get sympathy or something like that. Yeah. Man, it's real. Your emotions are utterly hijacked. You have no control over them. You can be standing there and you just feel numb and then you'll hear someone laugh and you'll think, how the fuck can you laugh in a place like this? You know, Um, and you're just shaking with anger at your frustration. And then tears will just be rolling down your face. And for at least three years, maybe longer, um, I'd be walking around and looking at hanging points or different places I could just sort of do away with myself and not be found until it was too late. But I was fortunate in that I had seen two documentaries and both of them talked about the aftermath of suicide on the family. And I knew that I couldn't do that to my father, um, to my daughters. And it's the only thing that stopped me. And I actually got to the point where I resented that impediment that I couldn't do it. And, you know, I pushed people away. I stopped writing. I stopped ringing. I stopped letting people visit me because when they came, you know, I was such miserable company and I just saw the look of pain on their faces where they left and I thought I've been an asshole again and I just couldn't keep putting them through that and so I had to change and I said to to myself you know this isn't who I am this isn't who I want to be I've got to stop Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. As mentioned, Henry would be in prison trying to fight his conviction with very little help from the outside, as he had no funds in which to employ any legal support. Luckily, however, for Henry, he would get a lot of help from a couple of individuals who were disturbed by what they'd heard about this case. One being an executive producer for Channel 7's current affairs program Today Tonight, Graham Archer, who would in fact go on to write a book about this case. And of course, the man who's been talking us through the story of Dr Manock, Bob Moles. Dr Moles says that unfortunately, during Henry's appeal, the attorney putting it through, for some reason, would make no mention of Dr Manock. So then you would expect, wouldn't you, that when Mr Keogh goes up for his appeal after his conviction, that his barrister would make mention of the fact that the baby deaths report hadn't been disclosed at that time. As if you remember, it was disclosed two days after Keogh was convicted. So we've now got a report from the coroner providing valuable information to show that Dr Manor really his, his evidence is profoundly in question. That would be a big issue on the appeal. But when Mr Keogh had his appeal, that wasn't mentioned at all. And afterwards, the barrister who represented him, Mr Michael David QC, who subsequently went on to be one of the South Australia's longest-serving Supreme Court judges. He was asked by the solicitor representing Mr Keogh at the time, well, Mr David, when you took Mr Keogh's case on appeal to the appeal court, you didn't mention anything about the non-disclosure of the baby deaths reports. Why was that? And he said two things. First thing he said was, I couldn't see how the non-disclosure of the baby deaths report would have helped Mr Keogh's appeal. Now, that's quite an extraordinary thing to say. It would have guaranteed that Mr Keogh's appeal would be successful can't be any possible doubt about that. This is not a grey area. And then he had another rather curious observation, and that was to the effect that I only had a chance to read the coronial report at an embryonic level before Mr Keogh's appeal came on for a hearing. I'm not entirely sure what that means, because I don't know what reading things at an embryonic level actually Perhaps it means to say I didn't have time to read it properly. You don't actually have to read the whole of it. You just have to glance at it. It, it makes it perfectly clear Dr Manick is incompetent. He's giving evidence that's unreliable. He's not honest. All these things, they just leap out at you. 
we have the glasses on board, see that. So now we know that Mr. Keogh, for whatever reason, didn't have these issues raised on his appeal, and his appeal has been unsuccessful. So that comes back as denied. Well, that's when I realised that, because um, up until that point, uh, I'd also thought that um, you could go back to the High Court a number of times. I didn't realise that once you've been there once, that's it. You're done and done and dusted, mate. All your avenues have been exhausted. That's when I realised that this wasn't a legal fight. It was a political fight. I mean, that had become increasingly obvious as, as time had gone on, given the vitriolic opposition that had come out from the uh, then Labor government. I shifted from thinking, well, I could die in here, to I was definitely going to die in here. I said to my brother, when I die, I want you to refuse to take my body. He said, what are you talking about? You know, you're not going to die. I said, well, I'm not getting out either. To get out on parole, you've got to stick your hand up and say you did it and show contrition. Well, that was never going to happen. Even if I had been prepared to do that about face, there was no way known the um, then government who had set up uh, what they call an executive committee and they have to ratify any uh, recommendations from the parole board for lifers. And as far as I was concerned, um, that was never going to happen for me. And I said, um, if they're prepared to put this much effort and time and money into keeping me here and opposing all of my appeals, I'm not going to have them turn around and um, stick my family with the final insult uh, and the cost of my funeral. They can feel more better with me. And we come into the picture and we're then asked, what can we do about it? So at the time I become involved, I know that Mr. Keogh's claiming to be wrongly convicted. It's a horrible crime. I'm asked by a person who was a solicitor in town at the time to have a review. I'm an academic at Adelaide University. I'm not a legal practitioner, but I was doing the sort of work that you are familiar with in terms of innocence projects in the US and that sort of a role, taking on a review of a case that nobody's got money to pay the lawyers to, to do these things, so they'd reach out to anybody who would help them, basically. And academics at universities often fill in the gap, as it were. So I'm asked to have a look at it. Um, I'm identifying the information that we've referred to now about Dr. Manock and these other cases, and all the rest of it. I formed view very clearly that this is a case that's crying out to have the conviction overturned, and rather naively, because this really wasn't my area of expertise. I never thought it would take over my life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Pandora's box, that's for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I started working on it. We put in a submission to the Attorney General to refer the case back to the court for review. We brought the Keogh case to the appeal court and said, this is a wrongful conviction, we need you to have a look at it. And then they said to us, look, we're terribly sorry, we can't actually look at this matter at all. Under the law in Australia, you're only allowed one appeal. Excuse, how does it be? You can't come back and knock on the door again and ask for another appeal. That's, that's not allowed. I mean, otherwise, everybody would be knocking on the door every day. Where would we be then? So the law says very clearly, you're only allowed one appeal. That's all you get. Thankfully for Henry, Dr Moles is not one to just walk away when he's told, too bad, so sad. So he decides to go and have a closer look at this apparent legislation and discovers something quite interesting. When the judges had said, you're only allowed for one appeal, They said in their judgments, but that's the wording of the legislation. Legislation said you've only got one appeal, that's all you've got. I did the obvious thing. I went and had a look at the legislation. It doesn't say anything of the sort. Hmm. What it says is a person may appeal 
and then it says one, two, three. Number one, if there's an unreasonable jury verdict. Number two, if it's an error of law. Number three, if for any other reason there's a miscarriage of justice. It doesn't say it, how many times you can do that appeal. It just says you've got the reasons why you can appeal and that's it. That's right. But the explanation that they gave that we're banned by the legislation to only allow one appeal was false. It was incorrect. So what do we do? Well, I mean, I'd say to Henry, look, terribly sorry, old chap, but, you know, there's nothing further we can do, you know, have a nice time, you know. But we couldn't do that. So we decided that we'd put in a submission to the Australian Human Rights Commission and we would put the proposition to them that the criminal appeal rights in all states and territories throughout Australia failed to comply with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And what we said to the Human Rights Commission was that Mr Keogh hasn't had a fair trial at the time of his trial, the Crown presented an expert witness who they knew to be incompetent and unqualified and to give evidence that was unreliable. And they hadn't disclosed that to Mr Keogh. So clearly he didn't get a fair trial. When it comes to an appeal, he clearly didn't get an effective appeal because at the time of his appeal, he didn't know the extent of Dr Manick's incompetence and lack of qualifications. And that information wasn't presented to the court by his legal advisers. And so therefore he hasn't had an effective appeal. He now wants to correct the situation. He's not allowed access back to the legal system. He has no legal right to any further hearing of his case. We put the argument to the Human Rights Commission and we didn't expect necessarily that they would agree with us. I mean, the legal rights have been enforced throughout Australia for over 100 years. They've never been changed. Nobody's ever complained about them being incompatible with our human rights treaties. So, you know, it's a big ask. But happily, they decided that we were correct in what we said, and they decided to issue a formal report to say that the criminal appeal system in all states and territories, but particularly in South Australia, did not comply with the international government. And at that time, we had about six months previously introduced a bill to the South Australian Parliament to set up a criminal cases review commission like they have in the UK. The bill that we'd put for to establish a CCRC was going through the Parliament and it was then referred to a parliamentary inquiry, what they called the Legislative Review Committee. And the Legislative Review Committee sought submissions from members of the public on this issue. Should we have a Criminal Cases Review Commission? It just so happened at that time that the Human Rights Commission had now issued their report saying the legal appeal rights in South Australia do not comply with the international human rights obligations. That report was sent to the Parliament, we sent it to the Parliament and the Parliament considered it. And then after considering it, they recommended three things. First of all, they weren't going to recommend a Criminal Cases Review Commission like they had in the UK, but they said there should be a forensic review panel. They also said there should be an inquiry into use of expert evidence in criminal trials. And then after that, they said the Parliament should establish a further statutory right to a second or further appeal. And at the time, the Attorney General, John Rowe, had said, if there is a recommendation from this committee to make some form of legislative change, we'll give that serious consideration and almost certainly implement it. And so he did. Um, about three months later, Parliament passed legislation to create a right to a second or further appeal. While Bob Moles had been instrumental in getting um, a second reading of um, the legislation so that there'd be uh, another legitimate avenue of appeal for those who've got fresh and uh, compelling evidence. So it gave me a glimmer of hope, but by then um, I've lost my faith in the justice system. We had had so many 
really appalling decisions when it could have gone the, um, the right way. And you know, it made no sense logically or in law. And so even though the legislation had been changed, it didn't convince me that I would necessarily be granted leave to appeal, even if we uh, had applied. And then even once leave had been granted and the appeal itself proper was heard, I still thought there was the chance that they could still do me like a dinner. They've done it before, they could do it again. And I think the one thing that had actually at least a glimmer of hope alive was the fact that when Mari Shaw, my, um, the last barrister to come on onto the team, was called by the DPP and because um, they knew each other socially, I think. And um, he said, I've got something here that uh, you might want to have a look at. No, it was at that time that something very interesting happened. When he lodged his application for a second appeal, um, he was very soon after handed a report. This was the report that had been received by the Solicitor General in 2004, nine years earlier and had never been disclosed to him previously. That report established that if a further test, what they call a hemosiderin test, had been done on the other tissue slides. Remember this tissue slide from the left leg that actually mm. has got no signs of bruising. Mm. But there's some other tissue slides that were taken and were said by Dr. Manick to indicate bruises occurring at or about the time of death. And Professor Vernon Roberts very helpfully suggested, if you test for hemosiderin, which is a, a substance that actually takes some time to develop during the course of healing bruises. If you find that hemosiderin is present, then you may well have something that you would call a bruise, but it had to have been there for weeks, months, perhaps even years. It would be you know, a historical sort of injury, so it couldn't have occurred at or about the time of death. Although he recommended to the Solicitor General at that time, Please conduct tests for, allow me to conduct tests for hemosiderin on these slides that you've got. And that would help. He wasn't given permission by the Solicitor General to do that. She went in and um, he showed her a report that the previous Solicitor General had ordered into a, um, a review of Manock's um, post-mortem and his findings, thinking that that would you know, put a nail in my coffin once and for all. But it didn't, because what it did show was that there was no evidence at all, he said, to support a finding of homicide. In fact, everything pointed towards either an accidental death or some underlying medical condition, which we'll never get to the bottom of because the autopsy was so defective and deficient. And he said a very simple test could have been um, conducted to age the bruising that Manock had said happened at or around the time of Anna's death and therefore be contributing towards his theory or suggestion that um, she was killed intentionally. This report came and they kept it hidden for nine years. But when we saw that in the report, of course, it was thought to be a sensible thing to do then. And so as part of Mr. Keogh's application for leave to appeal, tests for hemosiderin were undertaken. And hemosiderin was in fact found to be present in the tissue slides that were said to be bruising that had occurred at or about the time of death. So they were also now excluded on the basis that they could have occurred any time in the previous five or 10 years. And this whole report into this Maddox stuff that showed that, you know, everything he came up with was, was rubbish. That was just yeah. basically put in a, in, in a filing yeah. cabinet and closed and said, well, forget about that. Yeah. Look, I don't know how you can defend that or rationalise it away. I really don't. 
is perverting the course of justice, that is um, withholding evidence. It's absolutely contrary to everything that officers of the courts are supposed to do. Well, it's criminal. It is. That is. If you or I did it, we'd find ourselves um, in cuffs. So when all that comes out, you know, and your your lawyer says sees all this stuff, do you then get a phone call to say, hey, we've got something pretty big here that's, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, Mari said, this is the smoking gun because it wasn't um, just a report that we we commissioned. It was the state's own expert that they had called for. And then they hid the, uh, the, then they hid the evidence because it didn't suit them. If they've hidden it and we don't know it exists, how did she oh, find it? There, because there was a change of um, person who was in the chair of uh, Crown Solicitor. Right, okay. He moved He moved up to um, another position. Martin Hinton came in and uh, who, by all accounts, um, was a very ethical and um, you know, straight-shooting man. And sure enough, he was. And he couldn't legally or, or morally pretend he hadn't found it. Uh, it was the key that unlocked the door for me to get back into court. The day you found that out must have been, you know, because you, you've, you've spent decades in prison. Mm. Were you still sceptical that it would it would get you yeah, out? Well, I, well, I had that I had that information before before we were given leave to uh, appeal, and then the then the appeal itself was actually heard. Because I still believe that even with this, there was always some possibility that they'll find a reason or an argument to either exclude it or say, you know, that's all well and good, but uh, the sheer weight of other evidence means that there's not enough there to disturb the conviction, as they call it. With all of this new information presented, Henry would finally be granted his appeal with a but. I was still at Goodell and I got a call from um, my lawyer and he said, uh, oh, the... um, the appeal court's come back and they've made a decision and I could just tell by his voice something was amiss. And um, he said, um, the appeal's been granted and he didn't have to say but but because I knew it was coming. And he said, but they've left it open for the DPP to run another trial. So he'd still have this murder hanging over his head with the possibility of another trial. But for now, all he cared about was his freedom. So the day I got released... I was driven down to um, Adelaide from Cadell by um, a guard and handcuffed. Um, but that was okay. Didn't bother me. But what I didn't know for sure was that um, bail was a done thing. Um, I actually believed that um, the DPP would probably um, oppose it and I'd either end up back in Yattler that night or on the road back to Cadell. When I got there, and I met the, uh, the the barrister in the holding cell, and I said, "So Sam, what's what's going on here? Um, are they going to oppose it?" He said, "No, no, no, it's all done. It's all done. It's a done deal. Don't worry about that." And um, he just his eyes just started to well up, and he said, "This is the proudest day of my legal career. This is why I did law." And I was so moved and, you know, he stuck his hand. I said, put his hand out of the way and just gave him a big hug.
As we know, although Henry was free, the DPP could still choose to take him back to trial, which initially is what they decided was exactly what they were going to do. For the simple reason that all this stuff that had been exposed in the uh, appeal could now not be let out into the um, public domain by the media or anyone else, because if, if it, as soon as I get re, recharged and rearranged, it's sub judice and no one can talk about it. So for 11 months, they had free reign for it, that story and all that evidence to be buried and put me and my family through all that shit again. Because when I first got out, I knew there was no way known they could run a third trial because they had no evidence. Their so-called expert witness was clearly discredited and couldn't, wouldn't be allowed to make uh, um, an appearance in court, not as an expert. Um, but the longer it went, and I hate saying this, but the longer it went and the closer we got to the date of the trial, um, my confidence was shaken. I thought, they can do whatever they like. They have all the power. I didn't have, I didn't have any um, guns to um, oppose them. Eventually, obviously, they, it gets to the point where they're not going to take it to trial. Who gives you that call to let you know that they've, they've dropped it? It's always up to the, to the DPP finally to um, determine whether they're going to um, press on anyway, even though they report to the Attorney General, um, who is a political animal um, in the final uh, analysis. But, I mean, we can make application for a permanent stay, and that was one of our options that we looked at. The alternative to that, and it's basically the same thing, but it comes from the other side, and that's what they call um, a nolly prosequi, where they just cease prosecuting at this point in time and leave their um, preserve the right to reinstitute the charges at some some later date. So you've always if, got it hanging over your head, essentially. They could, yeah, they could come yeah. knocking on your door at any stage and say, we are, we're arresting you again for this. Exactly. But, you know, knowing what I knew about the law by that point and the fact that they had no case, no evidence and n- never did, that didn't bother me too much. What, what was it? I mean, you you, you know, you'd spent two decades, you know, incarcerated and your whole, basically your entire life is controlled while you're in prison. You know, you, you can't do anything without, you know, approvals and whatnot or moving around and, you know, what was it like being out finally and being free? It was a little bit strange um, because I used to ride motorbikes and I'd had a number of friends who had um, really bad smashes and they'd be in you know, rehab for quite a while, you know, years sometimes just be able to get back to walking even. Part of my early time, I would tell myself, well, I was still in the naive stage and hopeful. I thought, well, my mates, you know, sort of they could do three, four years or whatever it was, you know, sort of getting themselves back together. You know, I can do it while I'm waiting. And what I tried to do, you know, once I got past the depression was just to keep myself active and occupied, uh, you know, stayed fit mentally and, and doing things for other people. To a certain extent, I had put my my previous life on hold, you know, with the old sort of a fashioned um, cassette players. And when I got out, it was like I hit resume play. I knew where I was going driving-wise. Sure, places looked a bit different because vegetation had grown up and a few more buildings. But by and large, not much had changed, except for maybe uh, the prices too, you know. Um, I couldn't get over how cheap clothes were if you went down to Target or um, Kmart, but then felt like I was being mugged um, when they wanted 6 or $7 for a coffee. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And one of my 
my scariest moments was in a car park, you know, built up car parks, where you've got to put your card into a machine and pay that way. I was still used to ATM swallowing your card if, if you didn't put the right PIN number in. <laughs> and I thought, lose my card and I can't get the car out either. It was, it was good, a little bit weird, but m- more good than anything. Does it ever look like you, you will be acquitted of it? To be acquitted would mean I have to go back into court and, and hear not, the whole and thing you don't want to do that. again. Yeah. And to what end, mm. really? Um, it would be just another entry in the in the, in the the legal journals or, or the uh, annals. And I don't care, to be honest, Jack. The important thing to me is that I'm out. I've got all the teeth I went in with and most of the hair, so I'm doing well. You have one minute remaining. This is the story of Henry Keogh, our first here in Australia. However, coming up, we head back to the United States to hear the story of Damien Skinner. You have a call from... Damien Skinner. An inmate at the California State Prison. Convicted of a murder in 1997. It's a murder, he says, could have in fact been committed by his own brother. It's, it's always a possibility. I know my brother's lifestyle. I know what my brother is involved in. So it's a, it's a strong possibility he did this. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. 